You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning and welcome to today's meeting, which is meeting the global demand for food assistance. Um, As well as the group that's in the room, we have people who are following the streaming version. Uh, There is a Twitter hashtag for this called ODI Dev hashtag food assistance. Okay, I'm Steve Wiggins and I'm chairing this. And uh, let me begin by just making, for a couple of minutes, a few comments about the landscape that we uh, confront at the moment. We live in challenging times. In 2017, we're being told that for the first time in a few years, the numbers of people who are food insecure globally has jumped up to 108 million people, and particular concern about the food crises in four countries, Somalia, Yemen, South Sudan and Nigeria, with, only, with over 20 million people um, in danger of slipping into food emergency and famine, uh, all on account of uh, a combination of conflict, bad weather, and other shocks, yes? And that tends to be the headline. I'd also say, however, that if you take the bigger perspective, we also live in promising times. These are not times of hopelessness, no matter what some observers like to tell us. Uh, We're making progress, if not satisfactory progress, on reducing hunger and food insecurity. And just for for the older ones in the room, a walk down memory lane. 1958-1961 is when we think we had our worst famine of the 20th century. And which country was that in, with 30 million deaths on some estimates? It was China. unthinkable today. In the 1960s and early 1970s, the poster child for famine and hunger was a South Asian child, not an African child, a South Asian child. And yet we believe, and every time I say this, I get a warm glow, because when I first said it in the mid-1980s, I thought I I was bound to be wrong. 1974 is the last great famine in South Asia, in Bangladesh, yes, in newly independent Bangladesh. It's fantastic in the year 2017 to say that is almost certainly the last great famine in South Asia, and we will never, ever see that again. Subsequently, the locus of interest in famines and food crises and food emergencies has come to be Africa. But even inside of Africa, the area which is vulnerable shrinks the magnitude of events gets smaller. Ethiopia, 1973, Ethiopia, 1984-85, famines of a dimension where you can genuinely use that adjective biblical, yes? Are we ever going to see that again in Ethiopia? Almost certainly not. We are not going to go back to those days. So we're seeing progress, and we're seeing progress not only on dealing with food emergencies, we're also seeing general progress on on nutrition. Uh, Those of you who follow the the demographic and health surveys, each new one coming out, plotting it on a graph, 
you will notice that for the last 10 years, the median rate of stunting across Africa has come down by at least 10 percentage points, with Ghana as the poster child of success, coming down from rates of stunting of children under the age of five from about 35% in 1988 to, on the most recent DHS from 2014, to around about 19%. So what we know by way of perspective is we know it is known how to get the policies, the programs right to avert food crises, to make progress on food security and nutrition. Clearly, much more needs to be done to scale up the successes and, where possible, to come up with new innovative ways of dealing with what remains of the problem of hunger. And I will use that as the setting to introduce the valuable work of the World Food Programme because they are pioneers in helping us come to better policies, better programs to deal with the issues um, that remain on the issues of food security and hunger. So, who have we got for today's meeting? Dr. Stephen Wariamamo from the World Food Programme. Um, Stephen Wariamamo is a very distinguished agricultural economist. Um, been at IFPRI, been at AGRA, been at WFP more than once, been at IFAD. These days they don't allow him to do detailed research, such as the privilege we have at ODI, because he has much more important directorship responsibilities. Currently, Deputy Director, Policy and Program of Coordinator of the Food Systems uh, Strategy. Now, responding to Wery's presentation, which is introducing the latest uh, World Food Programme, well, the first in the series of World Food Programme reports, I have two people in the room. I have Trihadi Saptuadi, who I'll introduce in more detail when we come to the time to respond, from World Vision. Christina Bennett here, who heads up the humanitarian um, policy group here in... Uh, policy group program here in ODI, and on the line from Nairobi, and I hope I hope she's picking up everything. Halima Ali Adam, who is from uh, the Safe Somali Women and Children Project. You're there. Good morning. Um, hope it's nice in in Nairobi. Okay, so Wery, would you like to introduce? The report from the World Food Programme. It's okay. I'll do it from here, right? Is that correct? Yeah. 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 Um, well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. And really, thank you so much for, for taking the time to be here. Thanks to ODI for, for this opportunity to, to share this, this new report. And, um, and indeed, thanks to, to uh, Trihadi, um, Christina, and Halima for, for also joining this this. Um, this event. This is a report about food assistance. It's a report about WFP's core business. But really, it's not a report about WFP. This is something that I do want to say up front, because we do, um, even though we are, we, we are implicated by the report, even though we take the report's messages on board, this is a report that we, we really see as being relevant to the, the um, the national authorities in whose hands the bulk of food assistance, as we define it here, is, is in. 
So um, again, just to say that up front, it's, it, is, it is an important point that we are finding we do need to, to say. Um, so how do I, how do I work this? this? There is a presentation, how, how does, click which one, the, the green one? Sorry. Okay, okay. Um, okay. Um, ah, there it is. Okay. So, first on what we try to do and, and how we do it. The first thing we've done in the report is actually to define food assistance. This is an, a concept that um, has evolved over time and we found it's important to, to say what it is that we are taking as food assistance. The main point is that it's much more than food aid. Food assistance is that combination of instruments, of, uh, programs and activities, and platforms that empower the poor, hungry, vulnerable people to access nutritious food. And so in addition to in-kind tra food transfers that most people associate with food assistance, it's actually this set of um, additional instruments such as food, um, such as cash uh, um, and vouchers, um, but also interventions within which these instruments are applied, and then the, the, the set of platforms and, and um, additional activities that allow these programs to be put in place. So this is the definition of food assistance that, that we take. And then using that definition, the report ad, um, addresses three questions. First, what has been happening in terms of the levels, trends, and patterns of food assistance defined in this way. So we use data from WFP to try and get a handle on what's been happening over the last um, several, several years. As that has been happening, what are the main challenges that, that food assistance um, faces? And third, what are some of the innovations, some of the, the um, solutions to these challenges um, that agencies are, are putting in place? So those are the three questions. And there are three themes that cut across the report as we address those questions. First, and this one you will be familiar with, food assistance as one of the main activities at the intersection of humanitarian action and longer-term hunger reduction. So that's one theme that runs through. The second one is that food assistance is delivered within food systems. Right? It's something which is a response to flaws, disruptions, breakages in food systems and therefore it's very important to understand what it is that food assistance is doing within these food systems. And third, and this is a very important one, that uh, especially from WFP's point of view, food assistance is certainly a public endeavor but it's built on many, many layers of commercial activity, transport, storage, finance, very important for us to understand that. So those are the three themes that cut across the report. A very important element to this is that we tried to imagine food assistance as a sector, a sector with a demand side, a supply side, and then um, uh, manifestations of the interaction of that demand and supply in terms of the scale, the coverage, and the composition of quality, uh, the comp composition of food assistance, indeed, and also the quality of it. So the report is built around a, um, a set of uh, some analysis of the demand side, the supply side, 
and then what happens when these interact in different contexts. So I want to just give a few highlights of that analysis, beginning with the demand side very briefly, addressing some of the supply side results, and then some of the, what, what we're saying, bringing the supply and demand together. So some of those key findings. On the demand side, we, we considered that the demand for food assistance is based on or is driven by a number of things. First, the income of the country, of course, but the level of instability or disruption, the performance of the food system. So when we had, we took, um, look, took look, looking at data um, on each of these phenomena, we found that countries clustered into four broad groups. Stable high performers, so countries are relatively stable compared to others and have relatively high performing food systems. Stable low performers, unstable high performers, and unstable low performers. And when you look at where the, the demand for food assistance is concentrated, you find <clears throat> without, not surprisingly, it of course is concentrated in the, uh, the, among those unstable, um, um, perform, unstable countries, but covering both high and low performing food systems. But where the majority of course is in that unstable, low performing um, category. So for WFP, when you look at our portfolio, it's concentrated among those unstable low performers, but very many countries in this unstable high performing um, segment, one or two in the stable component. So stability, instability, if you like, of course, matters importantly, but it also turns out that when you look at the distribution of countries across income, Many of, most of those unstable low performers are low-income countries, but it turns out that there are very many middle-income countries because they are having challenges, facing challenges on the stability side, but also in terms of uh, performance. So the, 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 the report goes into quite some, some, some detail about, about this demand side. And it turns out that, that the composition of food assistance in these different contexts also is different. On the supply side, um, sadly, this, I'm not sure if you can see this clearly, but uh, the messages are, are, are what are in yellow there. First, when you look at total expenditures, now looking only at WFP expenditures, between 2009 and 2016, everything doubled, more than doubled. So expenditures on every single category, more than doubled. But it turns out that this, this doubling, there's a lot going on underneath it. First, Middle-income countries, as I was beginning to signal, grew importantly in terms of the share. So when you look at that chart there, the blue is low-income countries, the red is um, lower middle-income countries, and the, um, the gray, I think that is, is upper middle-income countries. So when you look at, you compare 2009 to 2016, you can see that the share of middle-income countries grew um, quite a bit. In the top right, this is a story which many of you will, will, uh, will appreciate. Cash-based transfers, at least for WFP, grew from being almost nothing as a share of our portfolio to almost 20%. And this reflects um, other similar, similar trends elsewhere. And what this does, of course, is it expands the, the, the range of, of constraints that one is able to, to, um, to address because um, I'm going to say I'm going to show a, a chart in a second because it, it, it allows you to to mix 
um, respond in a context-specific way to given, to given uh, vulnerability challenges. But very importantly, the last chart there is that when you look at the distribution of food assistance across contexts, so what this is, the, um, the blue is emergency context, red are recovery, if you like, and transition context, the development context are the, the gray, and then there are some others there. Comparing 2009 to 2016, it's essentially the same. So food assistance is serving similar functions today as it did many years ago, but the way it is being, the way it is being um, um, put in place and being implemented is different. When you look across the globe and, where, and, look and think of that surge in, in expenditures, you can see that it actually was concentrated in a couple of areas. First, of course, in the Middle East and North Africa, area where we know there's ma major challenges at the moment. Um, so that, these, these are percentage changes. And then, um, uh, so you can see there's a huge, huge increase there. And most areas showed significant increase, except for, it turns out, Asia and the Pacific region, yeah. where um, I think for the reasons that, that um, um, Steve was, was uh, suggesting, the capacity to, to cope is in, in, those, in those areas is, is much, much bigger. Okay, so important differences across regions. And then finally, on, on the supply side, this is a result which I signaled earlier. And these are, this, this chart shows um, the, the, the shares on the, on the horizontal axis, the share of, of WFP's portfolio devoted to cash and vouchers. On the horizontal, the share devoted to food. On the left-hand side is 2009. On the right-hand side is 2016. So you can see that in 2009, there was very few countries that had any, any cash-based transfers in their portfolios. But by 2016, almost every country operation had. And it really does speak to an important result which comes out of other work, and that is that the most effective portfolios are those that are blended in different ways, blended in space, blended over time. That you, by, by combining um, different intervention modes, you, you're able to address different, different problems. So now these blended portfolios are the norm. Um, the, the, so that's the, the first question. The second question on what are the challenges? We found that it's useful to, to break these down into different components. First, challenges arising from what's going on globally in terms of key trends and, and disruptions. And those we broke down into climate change, conflict, urbanization, inequality. Those are the, the main ones that, that food assistance seems to be addressing. Some originate in humanitarian action as an area of work. So funding challenges, which I think many of you will, will appreciate. Then also, and this is really important, Challenges are linked to access, protection, and overall security. And then, if you recall, one of the themes is that food assistance is delivered within food systems. There are three systemic challenges that, that the report highlights. One we call the bad year or lean season problem, the last mile problem, and the good year problem. The report goes into some detail on that. But just to, I think that the, 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 the names signal the issue that Sometimes you find yourself in a bad year. This is many times food assistance is responding very much to this. Other times, many of the hungry poor we know are 
isolated physically, institutionally, politically, economically, they find themselves more likely to be hit by the implications of a bad year or a lean season. And finally, paradoxically, the good year. If you don't handle the good year well, actually, it really damages your potential to have lasting, lasting impact. So these are the, the challenges that food assistance finds itself, finds itself addressing. And the report goes into some of the innovations, some of the solutions to, to these challenges, and we can talk about those. And then um, if that challenge linked to access and instability and insecurity, based on an analysis of differences in costs facing WFP operations across those contexts that I, that I mentioned earlier, um, unstable, um, um, relatively stable or unstable, and, uh, and then relatively high-performing or low-performing, we're able to, try to model some of the implications of that for the delivery of food assistance. It turns out that access challenges impose burdens on WFP alone of almost a billion dollars over the world, across the world. Instability challenges imply, and these, are, these cover many countries, as you would imagine, over $2 billion a year. And then performance issues in food systems over about $440 million. So a total burden on food assistance as delivered by WFP alone, and you can imagine we are, we are an important actor, but there are many other actors. So the burden facing WFP is almost $3.5 billion. Another way of saying that is if these issues could be addressed, there is a dividend that could, be, that could accrue to the world of $3.5 billion. The implications and recommendations, we suggest that they fall into three broad areas, urgent, important, and strategic. On the urgent side, you, will have, you may have heard our, our executive director and others really stressing the importance of stabilizing and unleashing or um, freeing up humanitarian funding at the international level. This is important. I mean, this is urgent. It needs to happen right away. There's also a lot of um, discussion, a lot of um, um, pro uh, high profile being given to these political drivers of vulnerability and food insecurity. We have taken a, a stab at putting an economic value on that. We know the, the humanitarian, the pure human cost, but the report suggests that there is also an important um, economic or financial return to um, addressing these political drivers. Second, and this, the report actually is, uh, suggests that this set, second set of, of recommendations is, is, is really vital. As I said up front, most food assistance, as defined here, is in the hands of national authorities. You think of India's um, 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 activities, you think of Brazil's, you think of Kenya's, you think of many countries. They're, they're investing their own money very importantly. But it's very important that, that those activities be the best possible. The report goes into the nature of higher quality food assistance programming, emphasizing the need for enhanced capacity at the national level. This is, and, and for sharing experiences across countries that are dealing with similar issues. So we have, for instance, WFP, 
um, we, have, we undertake a lot of, of, share of uh, supporting um, sharing of lessons between Brazil, for instance, and African countries. There's a lot to be learned by, from countries facing similar issues. The third, um, looking further ahead, um, first, data. This report is based on WFP data on food assistance. But as I said, most of the data really lie in the hands of national authorities. But we have no sight of those data. We, we don't know, for instance, really what the composition of, say, Kenya's food assistance portfolio looks like. It would be very important to have that information. First, so that the Kenyan authorities know what they have, as defined here. But more importantly, um, understand where how their portfolios line up against others, line up against benchmarks that one would need to, to address or to identify. And second, and this may um, have relevance particular for this group, um, there are a set of really important, very practical research issues at the level of programming, you know, what works best in different contexts, why, and second, at the level of the system. And in this case, how can one um, undertake food assistance in ways that promote or improve the performance of food systems. We think there's a really important opportunity there because of how important certain, how important food assistance is in certain contexts. So that's the report um, and look forward to, to discussing it. Thank you very much. Thank you. commentator on what we've heard here is Trihadi Saptuadi, who is currently the Global Partnership Leader for Ministry Impact and Engagement at World Vision. And Trihadi's been with World Vision for several decades by now. Uh, <laughs> and he's been country director in uh, Indonesia, Laos, Nepal, uh, regional leaders for South Asia and Pacific, and now in the global position. He's just moved to London. Um, Trihadi, what do you make of, of what Wery has set out as the WFP position? Tell us what it looks like Thank from you. the point of view of World Vision and your work. Thank you. I, there's a special place for you, Stephen, so I'm, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> Uh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, let me say, first of all, is a thanks to ODI for hosting this very important conversation. Uh, my my response would be uh, cover at least uh, three or four parts. It's about the affirmation, uh, about some question, and possibly the future opportunity uh, to collaborate with WFP. And then the last one would be around challenges and maybe opportunities as well that we learn uh, as a partners of WFPs and seeing our works together on the ground. So that that's would be my, my uh, response. Uh, first affirmation that I would like to say is really thank you so much. We applaud and affirm the strong articulation of commitment of WFP in terms of helping and supporting government to meet their national commitment to zero hunger. 
uh, to meet the SDG 2. That's really critical. As by the end of the day, is that the government have, have the responsibility to deliver to their people this program. So I would like to affirm this piece, really critical piece. The, the second piece is continue WFP commitment to, to, to expand and to, to extend their work to ensure there is a breaching between humanitarian action and sustainable long-term development impact. That's a continue, in the report is very strong that WFP continue commitment to look into that. As a part, you, you mentioned about the whole food ecosystem there and food system, that's, that's really critical for us. Uh, so I'd like to affirm this, meaning is that we're creating multi-opportunities for programming approaches, addressing different contexts that you mentioned about different countries there. That's, that's uh, 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 I would like to, uh, World Vision would like to affirm strongly in this, in this report. Uh, we also would like to affirm the, the, the whole, the, the challenge and, and, and growing uh, concern around the last mile solution that also I would like to, to, to affirm uh, part of the challenges that we need to, to, to bring up on this issue is about how to make sure at the same time addressing the current urgent immediate need of the most vulnerable children, but at the same time uh, creating a space for resilience and, and, and families and communities. That's really uh, challenges for both of us, uh, for both uh, uh, from the development perspective and humanitarian action perspective. The, the one question from all this that, that I would like to ask to WFP would be looking into the new approach, uh, uh, new uh, uh, ways of doing things, need to clarity around what actually things that WFP stops or the invest. Is that any areas that WAP will say, we're not doing this anymore? That would be interesting to see this. <clears throat> the, the next piece that we would like to affirm is that we affirm the impressive growth of the cash programming. We believe cash programming provides agility, cost-effectiveness, and, and much more choices to the community and families and children. Uh, but we also understand, and we still need to learn, and, and WAP may can explain this, while we understand this case programming is kind of game changer for many operational in the future, we would like to hear what, what are other, the challenges that are emerging from this case programming. What are risks that are associated with the, with the growing, impressive, significant growth of the case programming? That would be a very important conversation that we need to, to hear as well. That's, that's the, the we would like to hear. Uh, the, the other piece that we also would like to applaud is that, uh, thank you, Stephen, you're, you're, you're mapping out about those four country contacts on stability versus high performance. I think that will we'll provide new opportunities for WFP and their partners, especially NGO like World Vision, how we can build an engagement strategy with different government in those different <coughs> contexts. What would be that opportunity there that we can work together 
to addressing those uh, different contexts, different countries. Because we believe even in the stable and high performers, there are also still a lot of pockets of, uh, of, pockets of, of poverty and, and most vulnerable children that need help. And when we, when we committed to the zero hunger, meaning no child left behind, we need to make sure that four boxes are addressing well for the long-term sustainability. Uh, we, we should not be in complacence because they are stable, they have performer, they continue being stable and high performer. I don't think that that would be the case. Um, so that's, that's on the, the last the last point that I would like to bring is the stories. I was in I was in Rwanda uh, two months ago, uh, meeting with WFP uh, Royal TSM uh, on the African Improved Food Program, mm -hmm. AIF programs. I, I really appreciate the, the way of the public-private partnership and market-based solution being integrated into this uh, African improved food. Uh, as the DSM and WAP and Governor of Rwanda putting their money, investment, providing super cereal food, uh, uh, put subsidy to the most vulnerable children, but at the same time also provided at the market uh, market level, market price level to, to, for the long-term sustainable development. But we have uh, uh, two challenges, and you mentioned the challenges, but I would like to, to tell the story in this room, what we call it uh, uh, two last-mile challenges. Not only one last-mile challenges, but two last-mile challenges. The first last-mile challenges is actually how to make sure that the food nutritious food goes to the targeted, the most vulnerable children in the community and in the family. Because we found, actually we applaud Rwanda ambitious uh, target <coughs> to reach you stunting in Rwanda. But we found the biggest last mile solution problem is that how to reaching out the most vulnerable children, targeted the specific individual child in the family and community especially when the child has siblings, because the food will be distributed among all the siblings. So that's, that's the first, the first uh, last mile solution. Meaning is that even though we have a really good programming and policy and strategies, by the end of the day, targeting the, the, the most vulnerable children will depend on the individual behavior of the families, mothers, fathers, and and communities. How we make sure that happens? That's the, the, the first last mile problem and challenge. The second last mile problem is that on the side of the supply. Uh, the program actually bring significant impact to the increased livelihood income of the farmers in Rwanda, especially the, the landowner farmers. But the challenge would be how to bring that impact to the small owner farmers or landless farmers. How they can be part of the supply chain and get benefited from this end-to-end uh, uh, -end, uh, value chain of this African Improved Food Program. So I think that's, that's the piece because I believe the second last mile will determine the sustainable solution for the first last mile solution as well. Because they're actually one, one family, one community with a, 
with a small at the small landowner or landless owner. So so this would be very interesting working on the last mile solution. I'm really appreciate you bring that into the challenge that you put it there. And I am very strong uh, that we need to work together on those two last mile solution, ensuring that targeting the most vulnerable children and the second one is targeting the landless or smallholder lands uh, farmers. Thank you so much, Stephen. I hope Thank this creates more conversation in this room. Thank, Thank you, you Trehadik. <laughs> now I'd like to turn to Christina Bennett, who heads up the Humanitarian Policy Group here at ODI. Um, Christina has been working for a long time on food security issues, previously Chief of Policy Analysis and Innovation at the UN Office for the Co Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA. Christina, the wider background to this, the current crises in four countries, the alarming rise in food insecurity seen this year, being reported this year, um, what's your take on the context to this? Uh, are we learning lessons or are we not learning lessons? Uh, how, do you, how do you see this? Thanks very much, um, Stephen. Thanks for also um, inviting me to speak on this panel, to be part of, um, to, to bring the humanitarian perspective to this discussion. Because, you know, as you say, these four famines that we've, that we're seeing in East Africa have been called, you know, the worst humanitarian crises since 1945. And I guess I just want to begin by talking about that, that, um, you know, by, by, sort of creating this hyperbolic sense around these, around these crises, I think, First of all, um, calling this the worst humanitarian crisis since 1945 isn't helpful necessarily because it's not true. I mean, I think you were speaking about the, the famine in mm. China in the, mm. in the 60s, and that you know was far more significant than, than a lot of crises we've had um, since 1945. But also, it obscures the real causes of the crises themselves and the fact that these actually, you know, somewhat these are these are the result of cyclical weather patterns. Um, and poor harvests, but a lot of what we're seeing here is man-made and preventable. And I think, you know, focusing on the kind of the hyperbolic nature of famine, the spreading like wildfire actually detracts from what we can do about it. Um, and the fact that these are caused largely by conflict and insecurity. And I, I don't think it comes as any surprise to any of you in the room, any of you online or, you know, the panel that what all four of these crises have in common is conflict. You've got, you know, the ongoing war with al-Shabaab in Somalia. You've got an eight-year war with Boko Haram in northeastern Nigeria. Um, you've got, you know, constant airstrikes um, in Yemen, as long as, as well as a ground war and a, a war just off coast. Um, and in South Sudan, you've got a civil war that's been raging there since 2013. So, so what does this mean for these countries and, and their security, food security situation? Well, you know, in addition to the, the the weather patterns and the harvests, you've got a breakdown. You've got a breakdown of governance. You've got a breakdown of um, of economics, um, and you've got all the insecurity that goes with conflicts around that. Um, you've also got, you know, markets that not only break down as markets, but also prevented constantly from restarting. We just did a, a report um, at HPG on markets in crisis, and you know, part of what happens is the the failure, you know, the, the failure of the market itself that there isn't enough food in the market, but also the breakdown of credit, and that's actually what keeps markets from resurfacing um, during protracted conflict situations. Um, um, and as you know, colleagues were saying, there's a, a huge access problem when you've got 
whole areas of countries that are under siege, that are being controlled by armed groups, um, you don't get to the most vulnerable people. And those access problems are costing money. As you pointed out, I think it's something like $2 billion, uh, $2 billion costing WFP in all of those countries where there is conflict, that lack of access is costing you extra money. Um, it also means that governments are spending their uh, their money on services, their money that they should be spending on services, an international community is spending their aid money not on getting food to, to people, but actually on mitigating the conflict that, that's happening. Um, it also means that, you know, in places like Syria and Iraq, we're spending valuable aid dollars on those conflicts. 80% of money is going to, to, to resolving conflicts and not on disaster risk reduction, on resilience building, on development holds, on all of those things that we know work to secure food in these countries. So, um, and you know, and that's all reflected in the appeals. If you look at the appeals for these four famines, they've all been very, uh, you know, a fraction of the money that's gone into these countries is actually, um, has been delivered, um, you know, in, in comparison to what's needed. And so, you know, all of these factors come together to say that we haven't, we've learned our lessons in some ways. We've gotten better at disaster risk reduction. We've gotten better at resilience. We're actually better at cash assistance and getting that money in the hands of people who need to, to be able to buy food and to purchase things for their family a lot quicker. But what we haven't done is addressed this issue of conflict and insecurity. We haven't been bold enough to really resolve the political issues around these protracted crises that push countries on the brink of things like famine in the first place. Um, you know, investment in DRR, investment in resilience is nothing when you've got, you know, bombing campaigns on your ports um, that are basically destroying your ability to get food into the country at all. So before we talk about resilience, before we start investing money in disaster risk reduction, why don't we stop uh, you know, those airstrikes, why don't we prevent from, from conflict and insecurity from, you know, reducing the effects of those gains in the first place and actually wasting that, that investment in those development programs. So what do, we, what do we do about it? You know, it's easy for me to sit here and say we put pressure on governments to, you know, uphold their commitments to IHL, to end conflict, to not target civilians. Um, when they are waging conflict, um, and to, la uh, to open up supply routes for assistance to get through. We need to keep hammering that home. I know we all know this, but we need to keep saying it. Um, we need to um, shift also our preference for response funding and really operate much more on a preventative basis. Um, I think, you know, we are in this constant cycle of appealing for more and more money for larger and larger responses that, as we've seen, are getting more and more costly. Um, if we were to shift the culture in our organizations and the way that we work to be able to invest money ahead of time, to be able to raise that money ahead of time, to, to be able to say that averting a conflict, averting a crisis is as or more valuable than responding to one, then actually we might be getting somewhere and trying to prevent some of, of the causes of, of the insecurity and the food uh, shortages there in the first place. Um, I'd love to be able to get to a day where a headline says crisis averted in East <laughs> Africa versus you know we're doing all that we can to respond to this horrible crisis in East Africa. I think it's a cultural shift. I'm not sure we're very close to getting there, but I think if we keep hammering those messages home, we may. Thanks. Okay, thanks, Christina. That's a very powerful way of putting it. Um, now I'd like to turn to Halima, Halima Ali Adan, who's on the line there, I think, from Nairobi. Um, Halima is the project coordinator for Save Somali Women and Children, 
Um, Halima has strong interests in gender-based <laughs> violence. Halima, uh, I hope you're picking, picking up what's being said here. And I'd like to get your take on this when you're working as a practitioner in East Africa and facing the realities of working in Somalia, which is one of the more conflictive areas um, that we're talking about this morning. Halima, what's, what's your take? Um, thank you very much, and I would like to take this opportunity to thank ODI for giving us this opportunity to contribute to this um, standing agenda. First and foremost, I think I would like to open uh, the floor with uh, saying that the best way of preventing famine is not simply uh, having technical, you know, uh, composition of delivery mechanism, but it's 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 important to. Um, work on the difficult task of the political systems themselves. And this is what Christine previously mentioned. And I think that is something that everybody is running away from. And unless we just tackle that, then we don't think that the food uh, situation issues in East Africa is going to go away. We, we've tried as, as humanitarian actors to avert farming for previous and, and that we encountered in Somalia. In effective <clears throat> government themselves oh, it's working fine a moment ago video, maybe. It, it's called a dog where all the this is audio do you want to ask her to turn off her video because that might open up some Halima it's breaking up a little bit here can you turn off the video and yeah. see whether the audio feed works better We now seem to have lost, lost all com, um, contact. Is it is it coming back or? No, it isn't. It isn't. Okay. Well, look. Um, Halima was making making um, a strong point there that it's the political imperatives and the challenge that we're running away from them. Very much reiterating what Christina said. Look, I'd now like to move on to audience questions. And I've got one or two which are coming in uh, on the feed here. But uh, if you'd like to give your name and affiliation, let's take uh, a few. Uh, is Halima back? Yes. Sorry, Halima, can I, can I give Hello? you another? Yeah, you're back with us, Halima. Can I give you another couple of minutes, yes, please? So I'm, 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 I'm speaking about the solutions to some of the problems, uh, particularly that the donors and NGOs have 
have actually faced um, in Somalia. But uh, the best thing that we've seen is um, effective coordination amongst uh, the NGOs and the UN and other actors as well, where we've seen a concerted effort uh, for the effectiveness of uh, the, the programmatic interventions during the drought situation. Um, but um, we want to see more of, you know, bottom-up approach where the community themselves are involved in terms of making um, certain decisions. And this is making them more resilient into um, uh, whenever uh, such um, uh, issues happen. The other one is about scaling, scaling up the humanitarian response. We've seen such a scale-up response, but we need to see more of the responses being having a, a quite good momentum in terms of uh, um, quick agent of donors saying we have to divert the, the, the funding opportunities from the programmatic that have been going on to an emergency that just arose. So I think we need to see more of that. And then effective also enabling humanitarian access. And this is Christine, she emphasized uh, uh, the previous speaker on this. I think it's a big issue in Somalia in terms of access. We've seen and uh, we want to see unrestricted access by eliminating also the bureaucratic impediments that we are seeing in some of the regions where it makes a bit uh, for aid agencies uh, facing a lot of challenges on this particularly. Uh, but also and empowering and equipping the government because at the end of the day, they are the people who are supposed to be at the front line making sure that they deal with this effect of famine. And I think that is one thing that we really need to um, emphasize as aid actors. Um, we, we make sure that we, we want to give them, give the government opportunities to speak up and make sure that they have all the capacity they require for them to make sure that they give solutions to their countries as well. Um, having said that, uh, but also come up with contingency planning and preparedness, which should include at least design of intervention. And this should be the nature, it should be in conjunction with the needs of the community and the nature where the beneficiaries live, as opposed to just giving a very holistic programmatic interventions. And you don't, and for example, somebody who sits in Bay and Bakol in Somalia is not the same, it's not going to be affected the same way that somebody who's sitting in Mogadishu. So I think we should diversity, diversify the interventions that we try to give this community. Um, uh, and then probably uh, a bit later, I might, or I don't know if I'm allowed to, uh, just touch on the international food assistance, uh, what changes have I seen, and also uh, the challenges that we're experiencing in Somalia. Can I go ahead? Uh, yes, if you can do it relatively briefly, Halima, please do. Okay. Uh, so the changes is, um, and uh, we, we congratulate WFP, uh, to be honest, on the cash assistance intervention. This is positively impacting the community and um, the beneficiaries themselves are speaking up saying that it gave them opportunity to have variety of, um, of food in their baskets. And this is very, very important to, um, to congratulate uh, those who brought the cash assistance. Uh, but also a prompt response as a result of better coordination amongst the humanitarian, which has resulted the death rate, of course, not to be as equivalent as it was in 2011, mm -hmm. which is something I think we should uh, uphold ourselves. But also challenges. I think uh, one of the biggest challenges we have is the fact that there is a mismatch of the need against the assist assistance given, and this is very, very crucial. We might be saying every single time that 
we need to be focusing on the preventive mechanisms. But if, if the response is required at that particular moment, because of the crisis happening around the world, I think it, it gives us a lesser opportunity, Somalis, uh, for us to act quickly and, and, and respond to those, to avoid uh, death threats. Um, those are my contributions um, for this discussion. Thank you very much, Halima. Uh, we got that beautifully clearly once we'd got over the technical glitch. Okay, now back to the audience and those people who are putting questions online. Um, name, affiliation, and we'll take a first round of questions. Start off in this corner here. Is there anybody in? Gentleman at the back there. George Dakura. I'm a PhD student at the University of Reading School of Agriculture, Policy and Development. Uh, my question is about food utilization. Uh, food is not just food. As food utilization goes beyond the biological and nutritional dimensions, so I want to understand from uh, the W. FP, in terms of your food assistance initiatives, what measures do you put in place to ensure that the cultural food needs of your beneficiaries are met? Thank you. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for the presentation on WFP's excellent work. Thank you. Um, my question's around the, the, sorry, Steve Brady, RTI International. Uh, my question starts around the increase in uh, food insecurity in MICs, and I wonder how much of this is, as countries themselves graduate from LIC, MIC status, whether they take persistent food security problems with them, and how much of it is actually new countries with new problems. If it is new countries, and recognizing that this is a, a massive oversimplification, how much of that new problem is conflict-driven, and how much is climate-driven, and then Coming back to Christine's point around political solutions, do you believe that WFP has a role to play as a broker in uh, addressing political solutions, or are you apolitical dealing in uh, mitigating uh, food insecurity issues? Thank you. Thank you. Morning. Uh, thank you for all the presentations. Edward Pace, Africa Research Institute. Um, I wonder if the panelists could just say something about the uh, enormous, this is in the context of political systems, uh, about the tremendous economic opportunities that these crises that we're addressing create. I mean, Somalia, uh, last time round, classic example of this. Um, a great many people make a great deal of money out of the crisis. And in terms of assessing, um, it's not quite to do with the political system, uh, although some of the players in these situations are political players. Many of them are just straight businessmen and women. Um, to what extent is this factored in? Um, and, and what sort of research are you uh, doing at WFP and World Vision and so forth to try and find ways of, of uh, mitigating this. Um, I mean, Yemen at the moment is another classic example where tremendously profitable networks are, are at play in terms of providing the sort of assistance that we're, we're discussing today. Thank you. Okay. And, uh, 
Okay, just, just to complete this first round of questions, let me pick out one that's on the list here. Uh, from Sonsiama Kagbo from Mozambique, who'd like to ask. Um, the work by Grace and her team in Sierra Leone was so risky it affected their nuclei families as members stigmatized burial teams. Should there be a policy to handle such issues after crises are over? Okay, this looks like it's referring to Ebola as well as um, uh, food insecurity. Um, Stigmatized burial teams and longer term work in that area. Okay, okay. That might not be a question. From this, um... have, I, have I got the wrong feed? No, you know, it's scroll. Oh my goodness. Sorry, sorry, sorry about this. I'm absolute. I don't have tablets and stuff like that, so I've. Scroll up, 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 up. Keep going up. There we go. Oh, sorry. No, one, no wonder I was confused by that. It's coming from another meeting. <laughs> Technological idiot in, in, in command here. Sorry about that. So, so forget that last bit. We've got some good provocative questions there, um, particularly on the political role. Um, my goodness, that question about are you allowing people here to make very nice living out of this? Uh, worry. Give us, give us an answer to some of those questions. Thanks. Thanks very much for the questions. <coughs> uh, George, George's question on food utilization and, and the um, importance of local diets and local food preferences. <coughs> Indeed, this is something that we've taken fully on board, <coughs> excuse me, um, such that if you look at the composition of WFP's food basket now compared to what it was um, five, seven years ago, you'll see a few things. First, it's expanded significantly. The number of, of commodities is, 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 much, is much bigger. Second, the quality has also um, uh, the bigger range. So now many more processed goods and so on that in some contexts um, we find are very important. And third, of course, the nutritional um, quality of their diet or of the food basket has also expanded. There are many more um, 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 nutritionally improved or what's, yeah, nutritionally improved products in, in, the, in, in the basket. So much of that is driven by what we know about the importance of quality, but also the importance of local needs and, and requirements. So it, it's very much a part of it. Um, uh, Steve's question on, on middle-income countries, yes, actually you picked on two things. First, there is a graduation issue in there. That some countries um, had challenges when they were um, low income, and these went with them into middle income, middle income status. But what we're finding, and Kenya's a really good example, if you see what Kenya's been able to do now, this, dealing with this particular crisis, and what it asked WFP to do in support, actually it's very different from what it was five, seven years ago. Now they have the program, and we are providing certain um, back, back um, office type, using the word um, um, loosely, um, for some of the for some of the, the interventions, we're providing support to them. Of course, there is still um, some work which is similar to, to the old work, but it's it's different because their their, their demands are different. Um, but also, like you say, there are some countries that were middle income before, um, but are, and are middle income now, and then they've been hit by um, a conflict or some some climate event. So the both of those things both of those things happening. Um, the, 
this middle income, the low middle income, unstable, um, unstable, low performing middle income country. Actually, there are quite a few of them. When you look at, um, if you have a chance to look at one of the tables where we show the distribution of countries across that typology, there are many of those uh, middle income countries that are low performing. And, but then on the plus side, and I think Steve's opening remarks about um, the opportunity that that affords because of their own capacity to address their own issues actually is, is much bigger now than it used to be. Um, I can only just really agree very much with the issue of, of um, the politics, which has come up quite a bit here. It's one of the, the main points of the report. Um, you know, WFP's role, and actually, I think, again, this is not a report about WFP, but you know, we and others actually find ourselves <clears throat> dealing with these, the, the implications of these political problems day to day, finding solutions that actually we should not be asked to, to, to provide. And this does give us some a need to, to be part of, of it, of, of the discussion. I'm not sure we would use the word broker in the way that you did, but certainly um, being cognizant of the political content of what we do and trying to leverage that in positive ways is, is, is something that, that we do um, take on. Um, Edward's point about the commercial um, dimension of, of crisis. I signaled it um, as one of the themes on the positive side, but I think that your, your point about um, um, the fact that there are networks and, and cartels and you name it um, operate both in stable and unstable contexts, and you do need to, to, to be cognizant of that. I must say I'll be keen to, to understand a bit more of the research that you're doing. Uh, it's something that we I don't think have addressed directly in that way, um, but we are aware of it. We have, um, it's part of our risk, risk mitigation uh, um, 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 pro agenda, if you like, and so we do have safeguards to try to address the implications of it, but it would be, I'd be interested to, to, to see what, um, what, what research you've done on that. Um, I had a question, um, a response to the Ebola question, if you would leave <laughs> but, but, but I, I, I will leave it at that. Trihadi, um, I'd be particularly interested to get your, your, your reaction to, we've had several comments that, you know, the big, the big problem here is political. And um, I wouldn't expect you to disagree with that, but... From the standpoint of world vision, trying to work in a world which does have po political conflicts, uh, where, where, where do you stand on that? What, what, are, what are the implications for, for world vision? Very good. Uh, thank you. I, I really appreciate these issues. I think this is a call. Uh, uh, I fully agree that there must be a certain way how to address that issues. Uh, and thank you, gentlemen in the middle here, talking about I, if I say, when we talk about unstable contexts, uh, we use more and more the fragile contexts there. We need to be very careful differentiating those contexts into at least two groups. The first I call it the, the, the unstable or, or could be low performers, low performers, because the dysfunctional of government in running the country. So you end up actually government that just, just dysfunctional or of very low function. But then the second one that we need to really uh, uh, recognize is that what we call it a place uh, 
where there is a protected war, protected conflict that basically a long-term conflict happen all the time. And in that place, there is a stability of conflict, meaning there's a powers that have a get benefit from it. And there is an economic of war that actually feeding into the powers and they have all the interest to keep that conflict long term because they have a, a stand on it. So, so I think as a political system, we need to address those differently, those, at least those two groups differently. Uh, for us in World Vision, two, uh, two things that we learn. First of all is that when come to the political solution, the challenge would be one voice one policy for every parties, especially humanitarian uh, 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 agencies. You know, WFP, World Vision, UN agencies, uh, civil society, how we make sure we have the same one voice on that one? The challenge is that is. Because it seems, even though we agree we need to address political system, doesn't mean that everybody has one voice. They may have a different way how to approaching those. The, the second, the second uh, uh, approach that we address, and this revolution doing all the time, is that strengthening our social accountability in every work that we do, including in the humanitarian response. Social accountability, we, we have what we call it the civil, uh, 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 sorry, uh, citizen voice and action. That's actually empowering communities to speak up in terms of how they view the humanitarian response in that context. Have, have just three simple questions. Let's say if you address, let's say you, you do a food distribution, ask, ask, just ask a simple question. Did we give you the right assistance? The second one is that did we distribute and fairly and justly to the beneficiaries? Did we, when we distribute things, we respect you uh, uh, as a as a community, as a as a as a as a human being, so so those kind of social accountability should be part of this conversation because those are the seed for addressing the political system for the long term. Political solutions should also come out from the grassroots, from the community themselves, because they're the one that can sustain uh, that peace and a political solution. I think that's that's the social accountability piece I'd like to bring on the table. Thank you. Christine, would you like to pick up any of these points? Sure, thank you. Um, maybe just, just two points. The first on the war economies question. Um, and, you know, as colleagues have said, I think there are people that, that, are, that um, prolong war on purpose because they're benefiting from it. Um, and, and we've, as I said earlier, HBG has just published uh, a study on markets in crisis um, where we looked at South Sudan, Mali, and Pakistan in particular, um, and how those markets operated in a, in a, in a conflict environment or a crisis environment. Um, and I think, you know, what we looked at were the ways in which those market systems, you know, fell apart under conflict and crisis, but also how certain aspects of those markets actually benefited and, and from, from the crisis itself. And I think the conclusion that we came to was that, you know, really part of what we don't do very well as humanitarians, at least, is market analysis before deciding on how to intervene in a crisis or how to, how, whether or not to use cash or vouchers or food assistance, how to apply it, where to apply it. Um, we, we're, we, we, we've started doing that type of analysis. We look sort of now at the, the kind of the micro um, supply chains of those markets, but we haven't really 
been very good at analyzing the different players, the different stakeholders in those markets and what they mean in times of crisis. And I think we need to get a lot better at that, not necessarily hiring humanitarians to do that type of analysis, but really incorporating, getting economists, getting market analysts in at the beginning of a response or during peacetime, you know, or during those the, those times of non-acute emergency where we can actually look at what's going on um, when you're not in a crisis situation to be able to understand better what happens during crisis itself. Um, and then maybe just something on the colleague's point on what is the role of international organizations um, in trying to find political solutions to conflict and crisis. And, and thanks to colleagues, I was very interested in your responses on that. I think, you know, as certainly as humanitarians, we uh, always take the stance that we're, we're politically neutral. Um, and so therefore, and I think you mentioned this, not really able to engage in some of the politics of what happens in, in conflict situations. I think there's, we need to make a distinction between neutrality um, and being kind of politically naive. I think while we, you know, don't play to either side, we actually do have to engage of, in the politics of conflict and crisis situations to be able to you know, at the very least, organize things better for ourselves and our access, um, but that also to press these countries um, for political solutions or to press our own donors um, to be better at uh, at being bolder in finding political solutions. And you know, to some extent, it's it's biting the hands the hands that feed us if we're trying to put pressure on, for example, the UK government to stop arms sales to Saudi Arabia or to monitor the ports in Yemen better so that the assistance can get through when it, when it needs to get through. And I think that's really hard hard for large organizations to do. But I think, you know, we do have that ability um, and that clout within donor organizations to be able to make those bold statements. And I think if we can act as one um, as a humanitarian community to hold our own donors to account for what they're doing, I think we could be much more uh, effective at that. Halima, yeah. are you still with us? Yes. Halima, would you, would you like to come in on some of, the, some of these points? I mean, uh, these, these very strong points have been made about the, the importance of politics and the, the, the provocative comment about the war economy and people who are able to profit from such situations. Two really relevant questions with respect to Somalia. Do you have a, 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 a comment on this? Yes, um, on the point of the political, um, uh, one of the solutions would be, it's not only the GFP's, I think, uh, mandate, but it's a collective uh, effort that should be done by all humanitarian actors, but also emphasizing uh, on donors, because donors have direct contact with the government. Um, and we make sure that, you know, the resilience building um, is the ultimate solution to this. Um, for example, some of the countries, uh, not all countries are like that, but some countries require an equipment and empowering of those local authorities to make sure that um, the effect of farming uh, are actually uh, fought um, against. And this is by strengthening the existing systems. That's on a political uh, mm -hmm. angle of it. But mm -hmm. let's not forget also there is a dynamic um, force in Somalia, uh, politically, environmentally, socially, which sometimes it couples and what happens in, in, in all regions in Somalia. So, of course, there is constant of uh, disasters, single disasters. For example, it could be in farming, you could hear of conflict. So sometimes it's a bit difficult for people to have um, a certain way of, of making sure that we deal with one thing and settle it and then go to another thing. So I think that dynamism also is it, it, a, a big issue, which is politically linked. Okay. Okay. Now... 
We do, we do have time for a few more questions uh, from inside of the room or, or, or wherever. Um, this side of the room, were there... Uh, thank you so much for your interesting presentations this morning. My name's Marion. I work with the um, Humanitarian Resilience and Gender Cluster here at ODI. Uh, Stephen, I'd be really interested in hearing your perspective on how WFP is working with national authorities to synchronise your food assistance data. Uh, you gave the example of Kenya before, um, and I'd be really interested to hear about um, more on that. Um, gentleman here in the in the middle. Uh, <clears throat> Paul Parfard, um retired from WFP six years ago. Um, Halima just mentioned 2011, <coughs> which is when I retired, and my question really is to her. I think I was encouraged by what she said that um, the crisis in Somalia in 2011 maybe one of the, was one of the worst. Um, hunger and deaths caused by food shortage this century. Um, what lessons were learned? Have those lessons been implemented this time around? And from what Halima said, I think it sounded encouraging. Maybe, Christina, you could say something from the OSHA perspective there too. And uh, secondly, I, I'd have a, I'd just like to comment a little bit on this uh, question of um, the link between food assistance and the commercial sector in conflict situations. My experience working in countries such as Angola and Sudan is that, yes, it's expensive to move food, to procure food, and so on, but WFP does have a very, very rigorous procurement system with um, competitive tendering, uh, a lot of independent monitoring, um, so to put at rest the concern that there is a kind of free-for-all in terms of uh, the commercial sector and providing food assistance, my own experience in a number of countries is that uh, there is very rigorous uh, control on expenditure through um, competitive uh, tendering and committees and independent monitoring and auditing. So I'd just like to make that point uh, from my own experience. Thank you. Okay. Okay. We've got one more. Yeah. Thank you very much for your presentation, panelists. My name is Antoinette Salah, and I'm an agricultural and food consultant. Um, I have a couple of questions for uh, Alima and also Steve. Uh, my question to Halima is, what is the most efficient or effective system in um, receiving uh, food assistance for the IDP? Is it in kind or cash transfer? And also, have you identified any gender-based violence in the distribution of food assistance? Um, the next question is to uh, Steve. Uh, you've mentioned uh, that you are facing systematic challenges. Uh, what is your organization, WFP, doing in overcoming these challenges? Okay. Right. So let's, uh, let's take those um, questions we've got there in reverse order. Halima, there's, there, there were a couple of questions to you. Um, 
the question about what have we learned in, in, in dealing with challenges in Somalia from the 2011 crisis, and have we got things better at the moment? What's most efficient and effective form of, of aid for internally displaced persons? And are we seeing incidences of gender-based violence in the distribution of food aid? Halima. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Um, what has changed from 2011, uh, we, were, we are now more organized. We were actually more organized than a couple of uh, months ago. We've seen a system of effective of coordination, and this is across all humanitarian actors, from donors sitting on the same table with INGOs sitting on the same table with UN and local actors. And also we've seen a lot of more local organizations coming on board and making sure that they they act upon as quickly as possible for those who require the emergencies uh, at those locations that are inaccessible because local organizations have accessibility um, leeways um, as opposed to other INGOs and UN um, in terms of implementation of programs. But also we've seen um, effective coordination also from the government perspective. Um, and this gave us more hope because of the National Drought Emergencies Response Committees that have been developed in 2016 were more um, engaging with, with all humanitarian actors in, in terms of having concerted, uh, concerted efforts and everybody knew what is going on and what data are coming in, what should we do next. So it was more government and, and humanitarian actors' involvement. The other one is about the scale-up humanitarian response. I think we were way better in a better position than before in 2011 in terms of scaling up. We've seen um, very good uh, practices from donors and telling uh, those partners who implement their project to divert the funding opportunities that they were given in terms of programmatic interventions to the emergency response that is required at that particular moment. So it gave us more um, effective response, but I think the momentum should be something that uh, we should be talking about in terms of continuity, to continue this kind of intervention. Um, the other one is about um, and, um, contingency planning. Uh, we've seen more organizations being at the peak of uh, saying that we should be designing this program like this, but redesign it again based on the needs that are coming in, which is something that we've not seen. So it was 2011, it was a strike, but this time we were prepared and we were trying to avert that famine. So I think we were in a better position to do so. The second question about the effectiveness of the systems uh, as far as cash or food uh, voucher, which one is it, which one is better? Um, as I previously mentioned, uh, cash assistance was seen to be way better than, than the other uh, food distributions that are done because it gave it gave the opportunities for beneficiaries to have variety of food in their baskets, which is something that um, they really applauded. And to be honest, uh, it's something that they should continue as WFP to uh, make sure that we have more opportunities in terms of cash assistance and donors. It's a selling point and donors are really, really interested on this. Uh, and also gives, you know, a, a bit of um, local, local actors being engaged as much as possible in terms of making sure that we link um, the needs to the main um, the main uh, uh, interventions that are doing by all uh, actors. The second question, the third question, is about the GDV incidents. Have we seen increase uh, during the drought response at the moment? 
yes, there, there was uh, increase of incidents, and this is due to women uh, walking all the way from their rural areas to coming to the urban, uh, particularly Mogadishu, for example, and Baidoa. We've seen a close of an increase of GBV incidents, and this is something that um, was contributed, of course, to the movement of IDPs uh, and all. Uh, we've seen incidents within the, mostly within the IDP communities as well, because of the relocations and, and, and all those challenges. Thanks, Halima. Uh, we've got one or two um, more questions in on this feed here. The feed apparently had gone down. Now the feed's come back up, and suddenly we've got another three questions in here. So let me pick out some of these questions, and we can throw these ones into the mix. Um, looking at the bottom here, a uh, provocative question here from Saskia van der Kam from Médecins Sans Frontières. Uh, does helping out the, uh, the, the problem of Hurricane Harvey in Texas detract from food assistance anywhere else? Um, Oscar Davis has a question where he said, should we be getting food aid from more regional and local uh, sources? Uh, my information is it's cost an arm and a leg to move stuff around uh, if you bring it in from a long time out there. Uh, then a question from uh, Paula Gill Bison, who's uh, director of cash program at WFP, at uh, World Vision, sorry. Um, with multi-purpose cash growing as a way of providing assistance and WFP providing a great majority of this cash assistance, how does WFP see the role and mandate e evolving? And finally, from Debbie Hillier, who's at Oxfam, uh, do we need uh, more work on forecast-based actions, crisis modifiers, more flexible and adaptive programming to enable a swift response. Okay, um, my goodness, there's a great variety of elements in those questions with the ones we collected just a moment ago. Christina, we're coming back the other way down the line. Um, any comments on some of the issues we've just mentioned? Um, I think I had a question earlier about um, Somalia and whether the uh, response today had been was better or improved from 2011. And I don't work for OCHA anymore, so I can't speak for OCHA, but I can speak at least from what we're seeing here at ODI. Um, and just to pick up on, on what Halima was saying, you know, we actually have seen a lot more coordination and better coordination um, from the beginning on this. Um, we actually hosted a meeting last winter on this in Nairobi and here in London, um, bringing various people together to start thinking about the response when it was, or start thinking about early action when it was becoming apparent that that was going to be required. So um, that already was a good start. Um, I think faster and earlier cash assistance. Um, and I also think that aid agencies were, you know, I think one of the lessons from 2011 was that this re remote management model of delivering aid wasn't working. Um, and I think there's aid agencies, and I, I can't speak for operations, um, and maybe others can, but I think that aid agencies working in particularly Al-Shabaab areas have managed to work sort of from these, uh, so from kind of 
points throughout the country where they're able to be a lot closer to the response than they were in 2011 and to be able to organize themselves to be a lot closer to what they're doing. And that's been, we've seen an improvement on that. Um, but having said that, there are still the issues of counterterrorism legislation that are still very much in place in Somalia that prevent, you know, and that's a political question, um, that prevent a lot of the access um, until a famine is declared. Once a famine is declared, then you actually can can lift those, um, that, that those restrictions, um, but you know, isn't it sad that we have to get to that to be able to get the the access that we need? Um, on forecasting, yes, I would absolutely agree with um, Debbie on that. Um, the problem, I don't think, though, is that we don't have the information um, to enable response. I just don't think we act on the information once we have it um, to enable a response. So you know. I think that uh, I think we're very good at projecting and predicting um, some of these. I just think that uh, what what we've seen is that once we have the information, there are all sorts of reasons, and largely you know political ones for why we can't actually act on them. Um, and I think that's what we have to get better at. Not you know the data certainly more data, better data is always a requirement. But I think getting better at acting on that data in a way um, that makes our lives easier um, and gets us to the people we need to serve easier is more the issue. Okay. Trehan. Uh, I have no further comment, only one uh, point that I really like about more creative in sourcing food where it comes from. I think that that's a good point there. It's not just looking into the cost uh, efficiencies, but also looking into economic opportunities to sourcing food. I think that that's a really good uh, point that they mentioned. So I think that that's only my comment. Uh, I think the rest would be Stephen. You got better place to make those comments. Thanks. Um, could I ask a, yes. answer a couple of the, the earlier questions as well? Oh, yes. Okay. Right. Yes. Uh, Marion's, uh, was Marion, yes, uh, a question about um, uh, beneficiary, date date on beneficiaries and what we're, what we're doing with national authorities. Indeed, this is a, a, major, a major effort for us. We have developed a new a platform called Scope um, that is, does that exactly where we um, um, uh, digital um, uh, beneficiary recording monitoring um, system that actually there's a lot of demand from national authorities um, to help them um, in integrate this into their their systems um, in Uganda um, Kenya where the link is very much to the social protection um, um, platforms that they're putting in place um, that they um, really value the the objective basis for doing that that um, this, this system of ours provides. The report actually goes into some detail on that, so if you have a chance, you can, you can take a look. Um, Paul, you know, I was wondering, I knew that fellow from somewhere. <laughs> you know, I kept looking at him and saying, I think I know him. Uh, so Paul, thanks, thanks for, for that, and nice to see you. Um, thanks for elaborating on actually what I just called safeguards. No, it's, there's, there's a huge, a huge effort to um, make sure that what turns out to be $3 billion of our portfolio in mm -hmm. supply chain related activities that deals specifically with, with what you're describing, um, Edward, um, just to make sure that this is done in the right way. So Paul, thanks for, for clarifying and elaborating on that. Um, Antoinette, on the systemic challenges. Yes, uh, WFP has a lot of um, activities that deal specifically with those three um, um, systemic challenges. In terms of the, um, the bad year problem, I think Christina signaled resilience is really an important um, um, element, or the lack of resilience is an important element of the degree to which a bad year becomes a bad year. 
you know, two different families, one which is more resilient than the other. A bad year isn't a bad year for, in the same way for, for each of them. So really, we have a big portfolio dealing with um, addressing that, that dimension of, of um, um, vulnerable households and capacities to, to cope. So resilience is a big part. So food for assets, cash for assets that enhance their capacity to, to cope. Um, the, the last mile problem, there, the, a good example is our efforts to leverage our food purchases um, for, um, in ways that actually what, what um, Trihadi was describing earlier, where we leverage them and direct them towards certain vulnerable groups or certain resource poor groups. So we have a big initiative called Purchase for Progress, where we want to devote 10% of our portfolio to smallholder farmers, such and these are the people very much in that last mile, a big part of them, um, so that um, having this demand outlet gives them better incentives to adopt technologies and practices that improve their productivity. And then on the Goodyear issue, uh, there a good example of what we are trying to do to do is to work with governments on their public grain reserves, so that they have better capacity mm -hmm. to deal with with this avalanche of grain which comes on the market at harvest time in many years. So there's some examples there. And the report does give some, some uh, elaborate on that. Um, Saskia, on implications of Harvey for food assistance, I'm not aware of any analysis of that, but maybe others, others are. Um, um, Oscar, oh, I just would agree with Trihadi. This is a big part of our, where is which Oscar was um, on the, he was on the line, yes, okay. Yeah, um, it's a big part of, of, of our work. We've had a long-term policy to ensure that um, to the extent that we can do it commercially in commercially viable ways, we would source um, food from um, locally and regionally. And so it turns out that up to 70% of the food that we purchase is, is purchased locally or regionally. So it's a big, it's a big, um, a big part of, of, our, of our activity um, for the reasons that, that I mentioned. One, it's cheaper. But second, it also puts um, resources, puts income into these local economies. Um, po po Polygill on um, the multipurpose cash. Yes, this is growing in importance, and we are an important player in that. I think we still need to work through all of the, all of the questions which are implicit in, the, in, in what she said or he said. Um, one point that we would mention is that you know, many of these issues, many of these systemic challenges, also express themselves in humanitarian context. So it's important to, to even as we do multipurpose cash, understand that ultimately we need to be addressing the systemic challenge. Otherwise, progress on the, on the longer term is having that bridge between humanitarian context and the longer term will be, will be dif more difficult. So yes, um, we're in that, we're, we're, we're part of it, but many issues still need to be resolved. And then finally, on the Debbie's uh, point about the forecast forecasting, yes, this is huge for, for us and, and just about everybody in food assistance. Because to do that, you need, you need to understand how these food systems are evolving, and that requires some, some investment in, in um, looking ahead. And so, so as to be able, at the moment when you need to, to respond, uh, you need to have that. But you know, Christina's point is so important that we have never been able to, uh, to address all of the assessed needs uh, that, we, that we identify, never because of funding issues, because of access issues, or whatever. Um, so yes, we invest in forecasting. And I should probably signal that 
the next um, World Food Assistance uh, report will deal with preparedness and, and, and response because we know it's such an important issue and, and forecasting is a big part of that. But just to, just to affirm Christina's point that really being able, once, you, once you've done the analysis, to respond and be, you know, to act on it is, is many times the issue. So thanks. Okay, well, we're, we're out of time. Um, what, have I, what have I heard here today? Um, a very simple and crude summary of some of the currents that we've heard today is that there are many things that have been said today where you just say, there is improvement. As always, there is improvement in responses, in programming, in learning from previous experiences. But that improvement is always a bit slower than you may think, and it's always not entirely adequate to deal with the scale of the challenges we've got. But there's no, there's no doubt when I listen to WFP today, and if I imagine what the discourse might have been 30 years ago in the mid-1980s, it's chalk from cheese. It's a great deal more sophisticated. It's a great deal more responsive and almost certainly, and we know it from the macro figures, um, more effective. But against that world of slow and sometimes frustratingly slow improvement, we have the big challenges which are familiar to humanitarians, unexpected shocks, conflicts that seem to be very difficult to, to, to deal with, and inside of those conflicts, things that drive you round the bend, uh, convenient cartels which actually make money out of things like that. And Christina's big comment here is making sure that principles of humanitarian action that, my goodness, were forged through so much debate and so on, are not just casually sh uh, shunted aside um, in a narrative that says, oh, the world has changed and perhaps we don't need to, to bother with inconvenient things like humanitarian principles. Um, and I love the points that we got from Halima, working in the difficult context of Somalia. Um, I'm looking forward to the date when we talk about Somalia's problems in the past tense. It, it will be there. I will live to see it. And when Halima talks about building communities, local community action, local authorities, and building it up from there, um, those seem to me to have the resonance of there, is the, there are the roots of the solutions uh, to Somalia's uh, conflicts. Thank you ever so much, Wery. Thank you, Trihadi. Thank you, Halima. Thank you, Christina. And thank you all in the room for, for coming along today and those of you who are online. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.